When I was growing up in the 60s and 70s and thought about the book of Revelation, I thought those seven seals and the horsemen of the apocalypse and that lamb with the seven eyes and the seven horns were pretty trippy and cool. Jackie has critiqued the craziness of this text, but uh, there's something in it for us to see. As she said, the apocalypse, the word apocalypse, is from the Koine Greek apocalypsis, unveiling or revelation. The vision unveiled, she preached last Sunday, is a second chance at a peaceable kingdom, Eden turned into a holy city in which each of us are healed and nourished in the ways we need to be, drinking the clear water of life springing from a rescued earth. Violence and enmity have dissolved into peace because the light of, and love of God are in each of us. Read this way, we can see in this scripture the promise of liberation and of possibility, the promise to repair what's broken, to restore what needs restoring. To talk about repair, we first need to keep and keep on talking about brokenness, what's broken in each of us. Last week, Jackie preached about the complex trauma of being black in the U.S., a trauma exacerbated by COVID and violence. Joining her, Gloria Moy preached about the trauma of xenophobia and of drinking the Kool-Aid of racism that can turn black and AAPI communities against one another. I want to talk with you today about how I've been traumatized, yes, but... I also want to talk about what my lived experience growing up in the U.S. has revealed to me. At the University of Chicago, my white mother, Carolyn, fell in love with my Chinese-American father, Noble. An interracial marriage, like my parents, was technically illegal at the time, and who knows, it might be illegal again soon. It was certainly transgressive, especially since it was my father, not my mother, who was the Asian American. That she wasn't an Asian war bride shocked a lot of the grown-ups around me, I noticed. Their smiles drooped. They didn't know what to say. My brother Kenny and I have often been misinterpreted and misnamed, racially speaking. Sometimes people get us right, but especially when we were kids and young adults, they mostly didn't. Depending on where we were at the time, we might be called Puerto Rican, Italian, Mexican, Filipino, Puebloan, Dine or Navajo, or the summer I worked in Alaska, Clinkett. My brother and I were often mistaken for whatever prevailing group of beige-skinned, straight, dark-haired, brown-eyed people happened to be around. On the mainland U.S. in the 60s and 70s and 80s, I also suspect that some folks may have been troubled, may have had trouble recognizing us for who we are, because if they did, they would have to see and acknowledge the border-crossing love that we embodied. 
we were a mixed race, which people weren't supposed to be. Here's a story from my childhood in Murray Hill. This is a neighborhood near Flushing, Queens. Back when I was growing up, Murray Hill was fairly diverse. My brother and I, to our great delight, uh, learned the bad words in German, Yiddish, Tagalog, Japanese, Italian, Spanish, Haitian Creole, and much more. Murray Hill was safe and quiet, meaning that starting from when we were about seven years old, we were allowed to walk without grown-ups from our apartment on Sanford Avenue to the candy store about three blocks away. For my weekly allowance of one quarter, I could buy a comic book and, depending on the season, a candied apple, an Italian ice, or a candy bar. I usually walked with a friend, but sometimes I walked alone. On the day I want to talk about, I was alone. I think I was seven or eight, which means I'd have stood at around four feet tall, had a page boy haircut, and likely have been wearing black Mary Janes, a jumper, and a white blouse with a Peter Pan collar. I was probably feeling proud and a little scared to be on my own. After I looked both ways, crossed the first street, and stepped back onto the sidewalk, I realized that my path was being blocked. Standing in front of me was a white man. He looked old to me, which meant that he would have been at least in his 20s or 30s. He didn't move to let me pass the way people were supposed to do. Instead, he looked straight at me. He looked confused, then his confusion hardened into certainty, and his certainty into hatred. I can still see his eyes bright with hatred. It was the first time I remember being stared at by an adult with hatred. I didn't know what to do. So I froze. The man spat on the ground at my feet. Jew, he said, then walked around me and walked away. What I learned and have kept learning from this and encounters like it is that white supremacist ideology and action hurts people. It hurts and it keeps hurting me. It's scarred and keeps scarring me. It made the man who spat at and terrified a little girl into a monster. It made no real sense. It makes no real sense. Any sense it does make is according to its own shape-shifting hermeneutic. I think that to the spitting man, I wasn't white. European Jewish people weren't white either until sometime in the last century they became white. I don't mean to suggest here that the sin of anti-Semitism isn't alive and well and on the rise. It certainly is. What I do mean to say is that white supremacist ideology is always morphing. Like hydra heads, it keeps coming back stronger and more twisted than ever. Often, thinking about this, I feel hopeless. The beast 
that is white supremacism is as old as the modern era. It's strong, violent, hateful, and insidious. It powered the theology that said it was okay to seize non-Christian people's lands and dark bodies in the name of God and the crown. It's continued to grow. Today, it's the ideology that fuels mass shootings and the state-sanctioned murders of black people. It's the ideology behind the murders of AAPI people. It's the ideology that closes borders to black and brown people, children among them, and allows them to die in the desert and at sea. It's the ideology that locks black people up and locks them out and does everything it can to deprive them of health and wealth and thriving. And it's the ideology that loves death dealing stand-your-ground assault rifles more than children's lives. It's also the ideology that says to AAPI communities, your family may have been in this country longer than mine, but you'll never be American, even if you do buy into the white-invented myth of the model minority and try to jump cast into whiteness and oppress or objectify people darker than you. It's the ideology also that spreads the false rumor, false rumor that AAPI folks are economically poor, um, or economically well off, sorry, which means that if you're AAPI and poor, you're invisible. It's the ideology that can't stand my white mother's treachery and the existence of mixed people like my brother and me. White supremacism is also embedded in every microaggression, every hurt that's inflicted on us and in the ones we inflict on each other. Um, because even in this beautiful community, people, because we've been wounded by the beast and wounded people can wound other people. It's an ideology, what I'm trying to say here, that's inside of all of us, no matter what skin we're in. It's mine and it's yours. It's ours and we have to own that and deal with it. It's our original sin. How do we cleanse ourselves of this sin? How do we heal from these deep wounds? Back to the scripture. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The leaves are for the healing of the nations. The scripture doesn't say that the leaves of the tree heal the nations all by themselves. It says that the leaves are for the healing of the nations. In other words, we the people, the people of the city of God, um, we have to do something with those leaves. What can we do? Can we see in the scripture an invitation to write a new story? a story of us. Can a radical collective act of truth-filled storytelling grounded in love help heal the nations? The cover of an early edition of Walt Whitman's American Book of Revelation, Leaves of Grass, was made of woven blades of actual grass. In it, the poet describes a mystical experience he has while lying in a grassy field. 
Here's Whitman. Swiftly arose and spread around me the peace and knowledge that pass all argument of the earth, and I know that the hand of God is the promise of my own, and I know that the spirit of God is the brother of my own, and that all men ever born are also my brothers, and the women are my sisters and lovers. Love, the poet writes, is revealed as the kelson of the creation. That is, love is the center line board, um, uh, or the kelson, or kelson, um, that keeps the ship of creation together. Without love, everything would fall apart in the first strong wave. So, uh, middle people, what if on each leaf of the tree of life we were to write our stories our traumas, our blood, our truths about the beast of white supremacy that wounds us all? What if we wrote, too, about how much stronger we who fiercely love are than that beast? By writing here, to be clear, I don't just mean the written word. Um, we have many ways to write our stories in beautiful song, as we just heard, in dance, in theater, in art and film, in talking story and in our very bodies when we take to the streets and march. What if, middle, we were to write our stories and weave the leaves together? What if each of our stories were a blade of sweet grass that when we braid them and weave them do not break as individual blades of grass tend to do? What if our woven leaves of grass formed a strong, fragrant bowl into which we might pour the new wine we're making in this holy experiment called Middle Church? Is this what healing can look like? Is this what hope can look like? Can our woven leaves of love, fierce love, love in action, the love that drives out hatred, be the healing of nations? May it be so. Amen.